Today on Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to consider insight. It's an intellectual or an interior activity through which we grasp connections through things, about things, that just don't seem to be connected, but deep down are in fact deeply connected. This act of understanding creates intelligible patterns in reality so that reality isn't just a series of things that happen, and in fact, some things are connected one to the other and extrinsically. Uh, often when it comes to insight, we use the metaphor that the lights went on or we had an aha moment or we had this sudden breakthrough where suddenly the world looked different. Insight can happen quickly with the speed of thought or it can be the end result of a long, dogged process that leads us to understanding and opens up the world in a different way. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast. But here's a really good story about a wonderful American inventor named Charles Goodyear, an insight, and what it tells us about the gospel today. This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. Every one of us has driven around in a car on four tires that would not have been possible without Charles Goodyear Sr. or someone like him. This is the story about how Charles Goodyear learned about the process of vulcanization of rubber and made India rubber products usable and mass transportation possible. Charles Goodyear Sr. was born in 1800, and he died just at the outbreak of the, of the Civil War. And he's widely credited as the inventor of vulcanized rubber, although in the middle of the 19th century, and I'll discuss this, it became kind of a, a very controversial issue between the United States and Great Britain. Charles Goodyear started out working for his dad in New Haven, Connecticut. There he met and married his wife, Clarissa, who stuck with him through the ups and downs of his life. At about age 24, 26, he moved his family to Philadelphia, where he opened a hardware store. His business boomed, his family prospered, and the future looked rosary. But five years later, he developed health problems. He had digestive issues, and he couldn't work, and his business failed. However, Charles Goodyear is a dogged, persevering, and enterprising man, and he had real friends that stuck by him. And although he should have been, he was not easily discouraged. So at age 30, he recovered his health, and he got interested while he was sick in gum elastic, which is a kind of a rubber product. He read everything he could find on it, and then he got interested in this business out of Boston, Massachusetts, called Roxbury Rubber Company. He thought that he looked at the rubber products and he thought they were pretty shoddy. They made life preservers for the, for the Navy and for merchant ships. And the last thing you want is a shoddy life preserver. So he went to Roxbury Rubber with some ideas he had about making more durable uh, products, rubber products, and better life preservers. And the owner of Roxbury was really interested, but what he said is his company was uh, very close to financial fa failure. Uh, no real mystery given how shoddy his products were, and he, that he couldn't afford to pay Goodyear. 
So Goodyear, who is having his own financial issues because of the failure of his hardware business in Philadelphia, returned home to his wife and children was promptly arrested and put in prison by his creditors for his unpaid debts. This was before bankruptcy legislation, which was meant to get rid of creditor uh, prisons, but poor Mr. Goodyear. His creditors, however, understood that he was a kind of a go-getter. And so, undeterred, while in prison, Mr. Goodyear began his experiments with India rubber, a different kind of rubber product, and magnesium. He had done a lot of reading, and he thought that there was a possibility of making magnesium uh, resolve rubber's problems. The problem with rubber is, in warm temperature, it got really sticky and unusable. In cold temperature, it got really brutal. And he thought by making a composite product that he might be able to make uh, India rubber a usable product. And so what he came up with by this hand mixing magnesium and India rubber while he was in uh, prison is this product that turned white, but rubber is supposed to be black. So he used shoe black to make it black. And then uh, he took it to try to market it. But the problem, it didn't solve the the problems of rubber. It got sticky in hot weather, and it was too brittle for cold weather. His creditors lost patience and would not allow him to experiment anymore. Undeterred, he found a family friend to help him out with his debt. And he took his wife and his children, and he moved them to New York from Philadelphia into this little room in a boarding house. And once again, he began his experiments. He mixed rubber with magnesium, but this time he boiled it in quick lime and water. And once again, he thought he had success. In fact, he received international acclaim for this breakthrough because under some conditions, it was actually usable. And one day he noticed that if a weak acid solution came in contact with this rubber magnesium product, it became soft and sticky again. Undeterred, which is Mr. Goodyear's motto. He combined rubber with nitric acid, and again, he had success. He received a letter of congratulations from President Andrew Jackson on his new invention of this nitrated rubber. But then, because he was dealing with all these nasty chemicals, he lost his health again, and failure. But, undeterred, he kept thinking about it, and when he regained his health, a friend came to his rescue. They opened a factory, and they began to make life preservers and rubber boots, and it seemed to go with this nitrated rubber product. But in 1837, there was a downturn in the economy, and they were both ruined. Once again, Mr. Goodyear, undeterred, moved to Boston with his poor wife, Clarissa, and his kids, and he approached the Roxbury Rubber Company, the people he'd originally talked to. And he developed a new method that was even better. As it turned out, it worked great as long as the products, again, weren't used anywhere that it was too cold or too hot. They either became brittle or they became sticky. It was the problem of rubber in the first half of the 19th century. But, as you're used to by now, undeterred, he took a new job with the Eagle Rubber Company where he was experimenting with India rubber combined with sulfur. He was working out of his house. His wife was coming home. He went to meet her. And what he did was he had combined rubber with sulfur and he put it into the oven or on the oven in his family home and went to meet his wife.
when he came back to retrieve the mixture, he found to his amazement that it had changed. It had become more pliable, but had not melted in the heat. It held its shape under uh, cold also. He called it vulcanization after the god of the smithy, Vulcan. And it was sulfur, India rubber, and heat was the trick. It's still a process, it's called vulcanization. Quite by accident, he finally discovered what he was looking for. That invention was worth billions, and is probably the root of the process that made the very tires on your car. But it's a combination of things, isn't it? It's a combination of doggedness, it's a combination of intelligence, and just some dumb luck. But at the end, insight. You see the connection between rubber, sulfur, and heat, and the world changed. The gospel also invites us to draw connections between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the voice, the cloud, and the person of Jesus, and then Peter, James, and John, and a mountain. Those are the elements of the story. So let's talk about uh, the possibility of insight and what's really being revealed in the transfiguration. First, what does it mean Jesus is transfigured? The Greek word is metamorphoso, which is the basis for our word metamorphosis. And when you remember from your high school uh, uh, biology classes, metamorphosis occurs in nature. For instance, a tadpole metamorphizes from a little fish-like creature to a creature with four legs that can live on land, a, a frog. A dragonfly metamorphosis from a larva into a cocoon into a dragonfly, just like moths and, and butterflies do also. So a more metamorphosis is about a change not apparent in the tadpole or the larva that becomes apparent through a process. And so in what sense did Jesus metamorphize or in what sense was he transfigured? Because here's the difference between our understanding of natural metamorphosis and what's been revealed on uh, this mountain in Galilee. What's been revealed isn't Jesus going through a change, but it's a revelation of who God is. Jesus doesn't reflect light. A change doesn't occur on him. Jesus is the source of light. So for instance, who appears with them? Why are Moses and Elijah there? Both of them have met the presence of God on a mountain, Mount Sinai. If you remember, Moses meets him when he receives the law. Elijah flees Ahab and Jezebel to take a refuge on a mountain. Where Moses sees God's backside as God passes by, Elijah uh, perceives God in a still, small whisper and covers his face. When Moses sees God, his face glows. And in fact, when he comes down from Mount Sinai or he comes out of the tabernacle and he's been in the presence of God, he covers his uh, face with a cloth so that the glow won't discomfort his fellow um, uh, Israelites. And so Moses and Elijah 
Both have their history with the presence of God on a mountain. Here's the second reason why Moses and Elijah are there. Moses is the lawgiver. It's where they get the 613 precepts of the Torah. Elijah is the most famous prophet in the history of Israel. And for a first century Jew, there was the prophecy from Malachi that Elijah would return to herald the Messiah. And here he is with Moses talking with Jesus about how Jesus is going to be uh, leading uh, a new exodus out of Israel. So why does Jesus tell Peter, James, and John, who have accompanied him up the mountain, just like Aaron and his two sons accompanied Moses up the mountain, as they were going to found this new people and this um, and the and the temple worship of Yahweh? Why does he tell Peter, James, and John not to tell this to anybody until after he's raised from the dead? Because it's about the completion of a long project that God started with the people Israel. And so what does the transfiguration tell us about the mission of Jesus? What's the insight this gospel story offers? Do you remember what insight is? Insight is suddenly seeing the connection between persons or things that beforehand you didn't see as being connected. Insight is the aha moment. Insight can be after a long journey, like Mr. Goodyear, uh, looking for how best to use India rubber, or like Peter, James, and John, who have been wandering around Galilee, following this itinerant preacher named Jesus. This moment of insight allows you to put together a bigger story. So consider what insight offers about the story of uh, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. First, imagine how the story of the transfiguration brings together salvation history. First, God and the revelation of who God is. To Moses, in the book of Exodus, God is a burning bush that says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and my name is I am who I am. And so another revelation of God, just like in Exodus, God's the Father's voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Holy Spirit is there in the cloud that's descended on Mount Tabor, the place of the transfiguration, just like it descended on Mount Sinai, just like it descended on the tent of the tabernacle amongst the people as they went through the Sinai desert over 40 years on the way to Israel, just as it descended on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem when Solomon uh, went and consecrated the temple. And then the third person of the Trinity, well, Jesus himself, shining brightly, just like God shone for Moses. And so it's a revelation of the nature of God. Second, it's about God and the story, a story of salvation history amongst the people of Israel. Why? Well, God's present, isn't he? God's present, just like he was present to Moses when, he, when God gave Moses the, the law of the land. God appeared to Elijah because God spoke through the prophets. And so Jesus often says 
that he came to fulfill Moses and the prophets. The Moses and the prophets talk about him. So for these three Jewish men, Peter, James, and John, they're seeing God connected with the story of salvation. And then it's about who Moses and Elijah are. Remember that Moses never gets to see the promised land. He dies on Mount Nebo. He doesn't get across the Jordan River. Joshua will lead the people into the into the into the uh, the promised land. Elijah, who is part of this divided Israel, is a prophet to the north, Israel, instead of Judah to the south. And so his project of trying to bring the people of the north of of what is now Galilee, back to Union with the South, is left incomplete at his death. Moses and Elijah did, could not complete the work of salvation with the people of Israel. And so Jesus says, this is the third thing, is that he has to go back down the mountain. Even though Peter wants to make a tent so they can dwell in the presence of God on top of this mountain, which is what the beatific vision is. Jesus says it's not the time for it. He's got to go down this mountain because he's going to climb another mountain, Mount Calvary, where the work of salvation will be completed. So don't tell anybody until after the the whole story's been told. So the story of the transfiguration is about Peter, James, and John, these important apostles who are going to be able to put together Jesus' mission with the larger story of Israel. Insight is connecting disparate elements, Jesus with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God's work with Moses and Elijah, with Jesus's work on on this earth in his mission, and then connecting with the work of the church, Peter, James, and John will take this insight forward. And so what are we supposed to do with this kind of insight? I wanna complete the story of Charles Goodyear. Do you remember when I was telling you the story I ended it with him kind of accidentally discovering the process of vulcanization. Well, he went ahead and he got a friend because he really relied on his friends to help him patent it. He then got a patent in 1839. He was very excited about it and set about trying to go ahead and kind of monetize his patent. Well, at some point in the early uh, 1840s, he met two British men uh, who were very interested in his invention and his patent. Um, I don't think Mr. Goodyear was that sophisticated a businessman. Pretty much everything he tried failed. Uh, Interestingly, four years after he showed them his invention of vulcanized rubber, they patented the very same uh, process in England. Well, Goodyear was upset, and so he raised some money, and he filed lawsuits in the British courts to protect his patent. After an expensive litigation, which put him about $200,000 in debt, he lost because although he had proven, he had showed him the invention, and they had seen the rubber, the British court, and there's millions of dollars or millions of pounds at stake, decided that these two gentlemen could have, dis- could have discovered it all on their own. 
And so Goodyear lost. And what that meant was he now had to compete with this uh, vulcanization patent from England. Well, that was pretty much towards the end of his life. He died in 1860. He went to visit uh, his daughter, and he loved his family, but he was not a very practical man, I guess, although I think a loving one. But he went to visit his daughter. She died before he could get to her bedside. He collapsed and died soon after. But he was questioned about losing that patent lawsuit because, remember, well, he'd been recognized by Andrew Jackson. He'd been recognized worldwide for his uh, work in rubber. He'd been given the Legion of Honor from France for his work in rubber. And at the end, he really didn't have anything financially to show for it. And so they asked him about it and about his regrets. And here's his quote. In reflecting upon the past as it relates to these branches of industry, the writer is not disposed to repine and say that he has planted and others have gathered the fruits. The advantages of a career in life should not be estimated exclusively by the standards of dollars and cents, as is too often done. Man has just cause for regret when he sows and no one reaps. Mr. Goodyear was comforted by the fact that his invention was going to have such an impact on the world around him. Now, that's real insight, isn't it? That takes you beyond simply monetary gain, but sees the beauty of discovery and how it is that it changes the world. Well, think about the product of insight and the fruits of what you sow. Those disciples came down the mountain. And they were going to spread this gospel throughout the world until the present time. They weren't going to make any money off it. But they came up with an understanding that comes from Jesus about who Jesus is in the world and what our lives really mean. How we have insight into the reality of the struggles of our life and where they're going. Insight is not exclusively a religious phenomenon. It powers science and literature and poetry, but it's that same capacity that we have for drawing these disparate elements together in material reality around us that helps us to make sense of God's world. And in making sense of God's world, we find our meaning and purpose. And that's really what Lent is about, isn't it? about once again dedicating ourselves to understanding why we were made, what we're supposed to do. Because the old Baltimore Catechism would say that the purpose of a human life is to know, love, and serve God in this world in order to be happy with him in the next. But it takes insight to draw that together. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, recommended to your friends.